Hey, what's going on, everyone? I'm Jeremy Lee, and you are listening to Episode 7 of Reading the Play, the show where athletes share their story and experiences about life and sports. Additionally, we'll break down some key decisions they made so you can get a better understanding of their journey and where they are today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you can hear other great stories by athletes, and you can also find them on sportcalgary.ca. If you want more Inferno stories, be sure to check out Kelly Murray's episode, as she's had experience playing NCAA and U sports. So she'll talk about that, as well as some great moments from her first season with the Calgary Inferno. For more content, follow the Facebook page, Reading the Play, and to get the latest news, including new episodes on the way, follow on Instagram at Reading the Play or myself at Legacy. In this episode, I chat with former Calgary Inferno defenseman Jackie Pieri. Jackie's story begins out on the East Coast in New Jersey, which led her to play at her dream school, Brown University. But hold on, there's a plot twist, so be sure to pay close attention to that. She eventually finds her way out to Calgary where she gets the opportunity to play with and against many Olympians in the CWHL. Jackie has been a stalwart with the Inferno, playing five seasons with them, so we'll cover a few of her favorite moments with the team, as well as her decision to retire from the league. Well, it looks like Jackie's all warmed up on the hot seat. Let's get it. Jackie Pierre, you stopping by Story Island today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, how are you doing, Jackie? Good. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to get into your story. So you grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, is that where you're born as well? Yes, I was born near there. I don't think we have a hospital in Montclair, but yeah, in that area. <laughs> so if I were to visit Montclair, what is the one thing that I need to do there? Or see, or visit, or eat? Uh, yeah, like all the restaurants, pretty much. If I ta- if I when I think about home, what I miss the most is. The pizza and the bagels and the fresh off the boat Italian food and I miss the food. (laughs) They have really good pasta there, right? Yeah. And I feel that New Jersey needs a bit of a better portrayal. Yeah, it's not as bad as you think. I promise. I feel that New Jersey has a bit of an unfair shake because of maybe how media portrays it. Do you mean a particular tv show about the shore in new jersey (laughs) absolutely maybe some gtl i don't know yeah uh you know it's funny because there are places that are really like that but i i'm from like a suburban commuter town lots of people worked in wall street very liberal town it's a township yeah like lots of grass lots of trees uh we're near new york city but it's not like you know in new york they say new jersey smells but it's really not like that (laughs) And you grew up a Devils fan? I did, yeah. We shared season tickets with a couple other families, and so I actually saw them win the cup live when they won it at home. It was a really cool experience. Actually, I actually have some pictures holding the cup from when I was, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. That is amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> Favorite Devil? Uh, Scott Stevens, definitely. Really a poor role model for me to transition to female hockey, but what can you do? You channel a lot of inner Scott Stevens on the ice, I can definitely tell. Thanks. I think it's mostly been to my detriment, but I used to really love it. <laughs> Let's get into a little bit about how you started out exposure to hockey. Um, was it first seeing the Devils? What was it? Yeah, it was actually a really random story. So my dad was a football basketball baseball guy he grew up in the Bronx so it was all kind of low equipment low cost sports that were available to immigrant families when they're growing up in New York so not hockey not hockey at all and um, my brother went on a gym field trip to the ice rink and he saw like they went skating and he saw a hockey team practice after 
uh, probably our high school team practice after the public skate, decided that was what he was going to do. And uh, my mom tried to put me in figure skating. And back at that time, they used to break up the ice into different like lanes uh, on uh, across the short side of the ice. So I was in the figure skating lane, two lanes down from my brother who was wearing full equipment and his lane looked so much more fun. <laughs> I was always really like, even from a really young age, really competitive with my brother. And I annoyed my mom until she let me play hockey too. So then you beg your dad to play hockey, um, get you into hockey so you can play with your brother. Did you start falling in love with hockey because of the devils then? I think the devils were very much secondary. I think maybe this is just me, but I, I do feel like a lot of my teammates have been able to relate to this. I think when you start to get into playing hockey yourself, even not competitively, the schedule is just makes it really hard to be a fan. So I, I've always been a very peripheral fan. Um, I, I enjoy watching the devils, but I can't name everyone on the roster and I can't really talk about trade deals and off season, you know, people in the feeder system. It, I was really fortunate that I got to go watch some really key moments like the cup and some of the playoff runs that they had in between the cup win and, and all of that. But yeah, I, I was never really able to watch that much because practice and games were always at that time. So when was your first time on skates? Uh, I think I was eight years old, seven or eight. And I think I started playing hockey about a year after that, always on my brother's teams, which is a cool opportunity. He's two years older than me. So um, it kind of forced me to get better quickly. And then I would say I really fell in love with it around sixth grade, around 11, 11 years old or so. And I don't, I don't know what that was, what switch flipped, but uh, since then I just was a little bit obsessed with it. Well, and you've been playing defense pretty much your whole life, but most kids want to score the big goal. <laughs> and, you know, most kids are always cherry picking or saying pass, 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 pass. I never had that urge and I don't know what's wrong with me. This is the first season in my entire life that I actually thought, Hey, it would really help the team if I scored some goals. Like, I don't know what, when, even when I was like 11, 12, I was excited to crush people. Like I remember dreaming about the, you know, shoulder to chest noise. Like I just loved the contact part of the game. I don't know what it was. Did you just have that on a recording and like put yourself to sleep with that noise? Like I would, I would actually have <laughs> dreams about like wrecking kids and, and never dirty hits or anything like that. Like the Scott Stevens hip check actually was my favorite thing to watch. It was, I don't know when I actually realized this, but I also really like Scott Stevens because he was so professional and intellectual in his interviews. Like he was this goon on the ice and then he wasn't an angry guy, which I really like there's something about channeling anger and physicality in a controlled within the rules way that you're not hurting anybody, but you're having an impact for your team. Like it was the same thing, like the angles of a hip check, it's trigonometry. Like it's, I know it sounds stupid, but you're literally, you know, forcing someone into the boards, so they skate into you and you can throw them over your shoulder over the, over your hip. I mean, it's well, it's really require smartness. <laughs> it's really like the tiptoeing the line between a dirty hit and uh, a big time impact play for your team, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's. I mean, I just Scott Stevens. I really enjoyed watching him play, and obviously, like I know there's a lot of controversial hits, the Korea hit, and all of that. But I'll just say the game was different then. That wasn't illegal yet. Yeah. I don't think he was out there to hurt people. I know people disagree, but I wasn't out there to hurt people. That wasn't what I enjoyed watching in his game. I just I liked the physicality. How do you play that way on the outdoor rink, though? Uh, yeah, we don't we don't have that in New Jersey. It doesn't get cold enough. <laughs> I think the first time I skated outside was uh, on an actual natural water body was in college. We had like a man-made rink that my dad made for us in our backyard. And honestly, it would freeze for, I want to say like 
combined two weeks of the winter and he would spend so much time making this rink for us and it would it would just doesn't get and it's probably know, the worst ice the you weather. skated on though unfortunately right it, yeah i don't know the weather just doesn't really allow for it so i mean i didn't grow up loving it from the odr but i i don't know i was privileged enough to be able to play regularly i think it was like once a week when i was a kid but i still fell in love with it so yeah you fell in love with it but when did you decide to take it seriously in terms of thinking oh man i can get a college scholarship out of this i could play at a higher level did you even know that was an option for you i don't think that crossed my mind until very late in the game probably in high school did i start thinking about college yeah i mean i had my heart set on the olympics like everybody yeah i I really wanted to play for team usa i really idolized cam granado that's pretty much the only player i could get information on when i was a kid there wasn't as much marketing or access to players like there is now there's no google yeah, there's no Google, there's no Instagram or, uh, you know, all the various channels that we can reach the players now. And uh, I would say probably around 11 or 12, I really thought I would try and make a run at something. What did hockey in high school look like for you? Did your high school have a team or were you playing on a club team outside of it? I was doing both. So I know it's not really common in Canada, but in the States, it's really common for kids to play on their high school teams. Um, think classic U.S. football team of a high school it was kind of that that deal um the club team that I played for was in the same town uh and during high school we would do a short season of competitive elite uh the highest level I got to was midget double a which was the highest available in my area and then that would end in I want to say November so we'd have a shortened season and then the high school season would start and that would be you know ninth grade to twelfth grade I remember (laughs) it's actually pretty funny like I think most of middle school, I didn't really acknowledge the fact that I was different from everybody. I just thought I was one of the boys. And then when I got to high school, um, the seniors in high school are obviously not just having hit puberty. They were way past puberty. Uh, I remember a couple of my teammates were six foot one, six foot two. And when I was in high school, when I was a first year in high school, I think I was maybe five one, maybe five two. Um, it's a big difference. Yeah. So just the size difference, like, you know, that's me in my hockey position my head is at their their butt basically like that's a really hard place to make uh, a physical play on somebody you know to play defense against someone who's that much larger than you but I just thrived on that I loved that I loved the challenge and really was motivated by the anger of people telling me I wasn't allowed to be there or that I couldn't do it but being undersized did you have to switch up how you played defense though you know, if I were a more intelligent person, I would have, but I did not. <laughs> yeah, I just kept trying to prove to people that I could be physical, even though I was a girl and even though I was small. I remember my coach, my coach was a real old school guy and he wasn't very comfortable with me being there. And there were a couple of like, you know, things he did to prove like he knew I was the number three, 3D and he, my sophomore year, he, he, you know, he, he acknowledged where I stood on the depth chart and he still managed to sit me. But he was so old school that he respected that he wouldn't play someone worse than me over me. So he played 2D for half a season. They actually played all 60 minutes of the game, the 2D. And there were forwards that he had moved back. So it was just... And you'd were, still dress for the game. Oh, yeah. Me and three other guys behind me who all really should have been playing, but he couldn't fathom the idea of having a girl on, on the ice. And he and I made amends. I think I really proved to him that he was being, you know, way in the past. But I remember he said to me one time, you know, 
he taught me a lot of really great things. He was a really knowledgeable hockey guy. And he taught me a lot about, um, make sure when you're making a breakout pass, you, you draw someone to you so that you're not just passing off your four checker to the, the person you're passing to. And, you know, ninth grade, that was a new concept for me. And I'm sure everyone who's listening knows that that's, you know, you draw someone in before you make a pass, whatever. But I remember he said to me, you know, Jackie, you don't have to let the guy hit you. You, you could just move after you make the pass. And like, I was so stuck on being macho and trying to prove that I could be tough that it literally had not crossed my mind that I could not get knocked over or like or that I could like Protect actually yourself. just move out of the way. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm still pretty agile. I was pretty agile then. I would say that was my strength that I, I could have utilized more in high school and I didn't really. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There was just something about having something to prove that I think really helped my game, especially at that time. So that being said, how did things change for you in terms of maybe getting more playing time? Because you do have to have some sort of body of work to get noticed for colleges. Yeah, about midway through my second year of high school, he acknowledged that I was good enough to play. And uh, from then on, I got really good ice time. We had a new coach my last year, and he actually made me one of the one of the captains and played me in all sorts of scenarios. And I, I, I think I was second team all state. Uh, like... I was able to prove myself in the in the men's in the boys it's boys at that age <laughs> in the boys arena as well like it wasn't you know that was a hiccup in the larger scheme of things that was half a season Tell me about the college application process you know what did it look like for you when you were done high school and you obviously had your mind set on playing post secondary Yeah I think it's different down in the states a little bit I'm, I feel like I'm saying that a lot but I have heard from a lot of my teammates uh, through college and, and with the Inferno that people aren't really looking at schools in the States as much outside of sports, like in terms of academics. So where I grew up, we were pretty much groomed for college from first year of high school. We're trained on all of the tests that you have to take and exposed to a bunch of different universities and what their strengths and weaknesses are and the conversations about whether you think you'll fit in at a bigger school, a smaller school in a city in a more rural area. I was really academically motivated and I had it set in my head that I was going to the Ivy League. I don't know where I got that idea when I decided that was happening, but I know at some point I had decided I was going Ivy League, whether hockey brought me there or not. That was what I really wanted to accomplish. And then I started hearing about Brown and how it's an academically competitive place, but it's way more down to earth and people aren't just from very rich backgrounds and a bit more artistic and um, I've come to learn that that stereotype of the other Ivy League schools and the other good academic schools isn't accurate. You know, I have friends that went to Dartmouth now and Cornell. So many of our teammates went to Cornell. And That's right. I don't think any of those places are very stuck up. Like they all have a big preference to bring in inclusion and diversity. But anyway, I had it in my mind that I, I really wanted to go to Brown. And in my high school Googling, I kind of discovered that they used to be good at hockey. Maybe they were still, you know, in the running. And Digit Murphy, the coach at Brown, came and she ran a camp in my hometown. And I, I went and I impressed her enough that she noticed me and pulled me aside on the ice. And I remember thinking going into that camp, like, this is my chance, you know. And it was just like a normal clinic. Like, I don't think she was there to recruit. Pull me aside, talked to me a bit, gave her my resume kind of like talked about my grades a little bit with her and it went very quickly from there you know I went for um, an official visit I really loved it got along really well with the girls and like put together an application which was one big essay a couple short answers you know my SAT scores but I kind of had all the academic stuff in line already from just the grooming of my school like I was already kind of hoping to go that route so I had already taken like 
nine advanced placement courses and I had already done pretty well on my SATs. So it went very quickly from there. And I know that that's a very unique story. I think talking to a lot of my teammates, I think they were way more tuned in on the women's hockey world than I was. And I think that's a product of me being in the boys' side still. But I think a lot of people went to showcase tournaments, especially coming from the New England Northeast area. And I did a little bit of that. So, you know, traveling with club teams, you know, I'd play on a boys team the whole season and then I'd join a girls team for a tournament and try to make, you know, waves at a a four game showcase. I did all of that and I did get a couple of letters, but nothing ever came to fruition from any of those. I never got any follow up from any of the coaches. So stars aligned. That's where I wanted to go. And the coach wanted me and things just worked out miraculously. Well, nothing beats a face-to-face interaction with the coach, right? Right. I think actually, if we're talking about feedback for younger athletes who are going through this process right now, I think there were a lot of questions that I wasn't asking at that time that would have been really beneficial. Like what? Um, You know, some more information about uh, coaching philosophies. And um, for me, I'm really learning that it's really important to have a coach that values you as a human being and not just as an athlete that cares about your, for me, it was someone who cares about my academics and the rest of my personal life. And to me, that makes a better coach because you, well, I personally feel that sports are incredibly mental. You know, I can be a different player day in, day out, depending on what's going on in my life and how well I'm able to tune those things out and focus in. And so for me, having a coach who cares about developing team chemistry and cares about developing um, mental strength and toughness and focus and who cares about your academics those were things that I didn't even think to ask and those were things that I didn't think to ask the other players on my official visit because you know everyone has experienced someone who's really charismatic who can convince you of anything and I think a lot of those coaches have that charisma and so asking the right questions to the to the players on your official visit is probably going to be more productive and I didn't even think I was so like starstruck I went and I I know you're not supposed to drink on your official visits, but I went and I went, I, you know, I partied with the girls and I had so much fun and the campus was beautiful and everyone actually cared about class. And, uh, there were just so many things that I was enamored by and I'm not one to get starstruck at all. It wasn't like that, but I was like, this rink is beautiful. They have their own locker room. There were so many things that I was maybe just not, uh, analytical or critical enough in terms of how big of a decision it was for my future. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking back, maybe having a clear lens to look through through that whole process. Yeah. And I think, you know, asking your peers as well, I didn't know very many other female hockey players. So I didn't have anyone who I could say, Oh, you know, how's your official visit over there? What are the things you're looking for? I didn't have options to choose between, which I think made me less critical as well. You know, I had my, my number one pick on a platter in front of me. I still think I would have made the same decision. But that's what I mean was just like, it felt like your heart and your mind were dead set on going to Brown would it have been any different if you had, like you had said, gone, like asked those questions and asked your peers and all that? I think if someone had come to me and said, here's what's going to go down at Brown and here's not, what you're not going to like, I still would have been like, nah, you're just, you don't understand. This is where I want to go. So I, you know, there's an element of being 16 and having an opinion too, but I think that there could be a lot more analysis and critical thinking at that age. And it hits a lot of pressure too. You know, I totally get that to be in high school and to have these options in front of you. It's, it's a big decision. And I would definitely encourage people to not just think about hockey either, you know, injuries and 
we're still not getting paid millions of dollars to play pro hockey. So what else do you want to get out of your experience there? And will that program give you the freedom or flexibility to do that too? How was your transition from high school to university for you? Maybe both academically and now playing hockey at probably your highest level at that point. It was a really big transition. Yeah. Um, my first year of college wasn't really, it was less than ideal for sure. On the academic front, I was coming into an environment that I had really wanted to come into where everyone was a lot smarter than me. (laughs) You know, everyone had gone to prep school and had taken uh, much more advanced math and physics than I had, or maybe that was just how I felt. I know there's also an element of imposter syndrome with that, but, um, I, I had trouble with my classes, uh, and I didn't feel like I had the time to go for extra help because the hockey schedule was also a lot. Like how many practices a week? Every single day. Oh. Every single day and lift. So what actually really surprised me was uh, everyone kind of tells you that you go to college and you're, you have class, you know, a couple hours a day instead of the eight to five that you have when you're in high school. And for whatever reason, first year engineering, which is what I took, we had labs and uh, lab lecture and uh, I can't remember what they called the extra problem set sessions, but I, I ended up having these, this crazy, Tutorials maybe? No. yeah, something along those lines. And I ended up having these crazy long days uh, where I'd get up, go to class at eight, eight thirty, straight until practice at three or four, and then right after practice you go lift or you know whatever the thing is, and then and then yeah, by the time I'm ready to do my homework, everyone has already done their homework, so I'm doing it on my own, even though it's meant to be collaborative. It was hard. It was really hard. And then on the ice, I was also struggling. And I think for me, it wasn't actually the level of play. It actually wasn't a hard transition coming from playing you know, competitively with the guys, I guess even the less skilled guys still had quite a bit of speed and and that's where I really developed my defensive skills and stuff. So for me, that wasn't super challenging. What I did really struggle with was the transition to non-checking play. I didn't think it would be as hard as it was. You know, I think I got two penalties all of high school and then I came in and I, I was in like the top five of the ECAC my first year. I was getting like three or four penalties a game and I didn't have a lot of support in terms of how to adjust my game. You know, my coach in college just thought it was awesome. Yeah, you're being physical. But I was like costing the team games and it was really, really frustrating because for whatever the guys in high school had in speed, the girls in college had in in stick handling. Hmm. As early as I can remember, what do you do with a good stick handler? You focus on the middle of their crest and you try to knock them over. And uh, it was really hard. People, you can't play that way anymore. Y- yeah, I couldn't play that way. And um, at that time at Brown and the teams that we were playing, the girls w- that I was facing weren't very strong on their skates. So even incidental collisions or mutual collisions, I would stay up and my opponent would fall and I would get called. I had a couple of instances where I was literally skating forward with the puck and someone tried to stop me. I stayed on my feet and I got a penalty. And it was just such a frustrating experience. And... I think for all the previous time in my life, whenever things were going hard, I took out all my frustration through checking. So I think it was kind of a bit of a snowball of as I was struggling with school and, you know, making new friends and all the things that come with going off to college, my coping outlet wasn't there. You know, it took it took a long time for me to adjust to playing non-checking hockey, that's for sure. So were you kind of like a, a baseball pitcher after he's been pulled from a game where you just go and take out your frustrations on the telephone or take your stick and whack stuff out and behind the tunnel or what? No, I've never been, I've never been a punch the wall type. I just was just frustrated, just raging internally. And I spent so much time in the penalty box. It was so frustrating. How are you finally able to adjust the way you play? It took a really long time. 
it took a really long time. I don't, I don't really think it was till the Inferno that I fully figured it out. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I could do on the ice just strategy-wise. Like I could pivot and skate with the people or I could uh, give them a bit more space to, to make a move and, and then close the gap with my stick and slow up way more going to the corners and, you know, all those things. But uh, I still struggled when I faced a, a strong opponent. When I faced someone who had really good hands, I still didn't really know how to deal with it. Uh, when I got to Inferno, the girls are a lot stronger. And I think that really helped me that I could kind of find a middle ground. Like I could play somewhat physical and I wasn't looking outrageous most of the time. When the girls were, were able to stay on their feet. Way too. stronger on their skates and also way more skilled. Um, but yeah, col- first year of college was tough on the ice. And not to mention that, you know, we were also just losing a lot. I hadn't been on a losing team before that. And it was mentally exhausting. I had bad years where we weren't winning everything, but we were never losing as much as we were losing at my first year of Brown. And all like one goal games, frustrating losses. Ah, I still is. <laughs> I still don't really know how to explain it. Are one goal games more frustrating to lose than say an eight nothing blowout? I mean, if we were getting blown out on a regular basis, that would be just as frustrating. But I think maybe people would get more complacent. And I didn't feel like my teammates were at that time. You know, maybe I was just young, I was 18, but I didn't notice people being complacent. I noticed people still trying their hardest. So yeah, maybe. Let's talk a little bit about the leadership aspect uh, when at your time at Brown. So, I mean, coming in as an 18-year-old, obviously, you're still trying to get used to everything, get adjusted to everything. Um, so maybe leadership isn't on your mind, but I know leadership is definitely in you now, but was there any aspect of it at your time at Brown? Yeah, I, I would actually say I came in not expecting to lead, but expecting to be myself, which was a vocal hard worker who was willing to put in the time and to the sacrifice to get where we needed to get. And we had a very weird vibe at our team in Brown. I think we we're, I think I was caught in the middle of a probably eight year transition period as well, but transition how so? I don't even know. The leadership my first year or two was a bit all over the place. And I think we had, as a unit, prioritized the wrong things. Um, so what do I mean by that? We had people that would tease other people for working hard, for putting in extra effort, for doing the extra rep, for staying and bag skating themselves. We had people making fun of people for that, which just makes my blood boil. Like if someone's going to put in the extra effort, if you're a leader, you stay and you do the extra rep with them. You know, you Absolutely. all get better that way instead of just feeling cool. You know, and saying, oh, I'm naturally good, so I don't need to do that. Like, no, that's garbage. that's like a rec league mentality. Totally. It's garbage. And um, we had a lot of that. I don't know if a lot of people just had a lot of stuff going on in their lives that they brought to the rink, but we had personal life that carries over into the team life and things that shouldn't be happening at that level of play that really detracted from our focus as a unit and cohesiveness as a unit. And it was really frustrating to deal with. I remember... I think it was the middle of my first year. I went home for Christmas break and I had this moment and I just like wrote this email to the team just trying to be like, hey, like we got the second half of the year. Like this isn't over. Like we're okay. You know, normal, just like fired up, still motivated, get the girls going kind of thing. And it just like blew up in our face. And I don't even know how to explain. Like we could never get to that place of having a unified mission. We could never get to that place of having full discipline. And we had a lot of conflict within the team that didn't need to be there, but was instigated by the forces that be in the system. Like, you know, just, so I guess what I meant by the eight years of transition was, uh, 
team culture takes a lot of years to develop and to build. And when you have a team like a college team where you have four-year stints, players coming in and, and leaving in four years, that culture gets passed down uh, year to year to year. And uh, we were going in the wrong direction with our culture. We had some really great things about our culture too, and it's a historic program. And we have a lot of amazing athletes and players that have come out of the, the Brown women's hockey program for sure. Like, First women's program in the U.S. Yeah. And that was a big selling point for me. And we had a lot of Olympians come through that program. A lot of just missed the cut Olympians. Um, a lot of girls that were being looked at in the national program when they came in with my class, like lots of stuff like that. But we did have this element of mismatched priorities or something. And we got used to losing. Like, I don't know, we got comfortable with losing in a terrible way. So for you personally, when you were going through something where you, when you were like maybe struggling with school or still frustrated with not comprehending the whole no body checking thing in hockey, were you able to turn to anyone or have like talk to anyone or go to your captain? Like, what does that look like as 18, 19 year old Jackie? Yeah, it was tough. Um, I have some core teammates that I'm still in touch with and I have some teammates that I could not have turned to and it's always going to be a balance of that. But yeah, you really have to find the people that are like you and stick with them. I mean, Krom is one of those people who I turned to. And then I had a, I had a couple of girls in my class as well, because Krom was a class ahead of me that I could really lean on. And I needed it. I mean, um, I think this is pretty well known with the Inferno, uh, with the Keep the Beat event that I do. But at the end of my first year, uh, my my 22-year-old cousin passed away. And it was really unexpected. And it was really, really difficult. And you know, there are people that should have reached out to even even just like a text, which is like such an easy thing to do. Yeah, and I didn't hear from them. So people that should have done that didn't do that. And I think that speaks a lot to our culture at, at that time. Um, but then I did have people that I could lean on, but they're also 18 or they're also 19. And they have their own stuff too. Exactly. <laughs> so I really struggled through uh, a couple of years through college there. So did years three and four look different for you? I think I got the hang of school. And that really made a big difference in my livelihood. Huge. Yeah. Um, the class sizes got smaller and I start to started to realize that I needed to actively build relationships with my professors so that they would care if I wasn't getting the concepts. A lot of my first year classes were 150 person lecture halls kind of thing. So that was that was huge for me. So with you getting the hang of school, how did that maybe help alleviate pressure on, on ice performance? Well, I think I just didn't feel like everything was crashing at the same time. I think it also really helped that I was able to expand my network outside of just the hockey players or just the athletes. Like I think the way that Brown culture is, is that the athletes kind of have their own little subculture and they only hang out with other athletes. Um, We're kind of the only people that live off campus and that's great. Like, don't get me wrong. I have some amazing friends that are from the athlete group, but I think it really helped me also to expand to what we called the the RBSs, the real Brown students or, or the muggles. (laughs) you know, it's just like to have some perspective that it isn't all about hockey when hockey isn't going well. And it's still all about hockey to me. I, you know, I obviously continue to play and it's obviously an important part of my life, but, um, to have that perspective that it's not everything really helped. Let's rewind a little bit here. Why did you choose engineering in the first place, knowing that hockey was going to be so intensive? Obviously now today you're, you are an engineer, uh, but looking back, that seemed like suicide to me. I know. I just, I'm a nerd and I can't get away from it. <laughs> so, I, you know, my love of hockey. You didn't take like women's studies or geography. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I get that. But, uh, you know, second to my love of hockey, and it's a close second, is my like 
really strong feelings about climate change and that we need to do something about it. And all through high school, I took courses in architecture and uh, on renewable energy and in physics. Like I thought I was going to be an architect and then to do that would have been more suicide because you have like lab and architecture students are known for just having the worst college life ever. And uh, Brown didn't ar- offer architecture, so I thought, hey, like, what, what is the second best? Uh, maybe I should do engineering. Maybe I should do environmental studies. Engineering has more requirements, so let me start with that. And then I can change my mind and I can backfall on environmental studies if I need to. And then there was an element of, like, I'm not quitting once I had started it, which right. I, is kind of pigheaded. But I remember my freshman advisor at the end of my first year, she's, he's like, you know, I had a tennis player in here one time and, you know, he decided that wasn't right for him. And he, you know, he's, his grades went way up after. And I was kind of just like, you don't know anything about me. I know that you're trying to do best by me, but I'm not giving up my first love, which is hockey. I'm not giving up why I came to the school. And so why should I have to give up engineering? I will make this work. And there was kind of like a, just suffer through it, just make it happen. And, uh, one of my other teammates also did engineering and I ended up living with her and Krom my second year. And uh, it, I mean, it helps to have someone who has done it ahead of you. And you know, the thing at Brown too is like, I had some other nerdy teammates. I had some girls that were pre-med. I had some girls that were doing some like pretty intense studies and some girls who were really passionate about their business degrees. Even though it's a, a way less time intensive degree, I did have some teammates that were pretty into their studies and have gone on to, you know, get further degrees in those fields and focus on life after school (laughs) yeah exactly like yes I chose a really hard path but it was the right path for me even though it was so hard it's like you'd do it all over again I would do it all over again and it's crazy like I think maybe I would try to do a fifth year but it's too expensive to do a fifth year in the states you know I looked at taking summer courses according to my advisor no one was offering courses with as much of a with the full syllabus that it wouldn't have counted for credits for brown so it's just like i don't know i can't imagine do it having done it differently i wish i had better grades but i also got my degree so coming out of your fourth year at brown did you know that was going to be your final season i really thought it was going to be i really didn't know that there were any other opportunities that i could pursue like you wanted to play more I don't think I'll ever be satisfied with having played enough, but I I just, yeah, like I think coming out of college, I thought that was it. Like you're either Olympics or bust. I was nowhere near the running for the Olympics by the fourth year of university, maybe never, but yeah, like I knew Crown was playing somewhere in Calgary. I didn't know where Calgary was. She asked me to send her money for their like uh, loser pool. Like, I I mean, that was the extent of it. There was no, uh, like I wasn't getting like, highlight real uh, you know highlights of of how their games are going or uh you know she's playing for the team called the honey badgers and in my head i'm like that was that was the inferno pre-inferno they were the honey badgers and i'm like that sounds like a rec league team like i don't even know what to do with that <laughs> so yeah i was fully prepared to pack up my skates um and i did actually i left my bag and i went and i traveled for seven months all over the place and then i came back for christmas and my dad passed and then kind of things went downhill and I stayed at home for a little bit and then I just felt like I needed to get away from home or too many I don't know reminders or too much familiarity like I just needed I was kind of running away but kind of just like looking for something new like clean break and uh Krom told me to come up here I was kind of like where is here I had to Google where Calgary was. I still have to reference for people back home like it's north of Montana. I was going to say, you're not alone because nope. all the Americans are in the same boat, really. Yeah. Yeah. Like the extent of our geography is uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. I like to say to people, uh, 
the girls make fun of me pretty good because I didn't know the Maritimes existed, which I know is ridiculous. And I swear I'm an educated person. <laughs> no, that's closer to your, your side than here. I know, here. but literally our maps cut off at Maine. So there, I didn't know that there was anything above there. <laughs> the world ends at Maine. Literally. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not that bad, but I just thought it was, you know, I thought it was Quebec over there. And that was it. It was basically Bangor, Maine, and then nor- the North Pole. Is basically, <laughs> yeah, it's the polar bears. Yeah. That's right. Iceland's up there, right? Greenland. Yeah. yeah. So Krom extends an invitation out to you to say, hey, come out and play. I don't know where I'm going. So was that actual decision for you easy or was it difficult? Because you're moving, A, you don't even know where you're moving to, but B, you find out it's like all the way across the other side of the continent. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in a pretty bad place. So I was just like pumped to be doing something. Like it was... uh move or drown, swim or drown. And I also really love to travel. So moving across the continent wasn't in my head. I was excited to play again. Uh, I feel like my thoughts were more, what's the team going to be like? How am I going to fit in? Am I going to be an impact player? Am I going to be a bench player? You know, the coach at the time, Tim Bothwell called me and I literally couldn't glean anything from that conversation. Um, He told me that he knew my coach from college and I was kind of like, oh God, you know, I hope that we're... uh, Hope it's not four yeah, more I years hope of he this. Hasn't, yeah. yeah, I hope he hasn't. Uh, I hope you haven't heard bad things about me. Like I'm wanting to come in with a fresh start. I want to come in and you know prove myself and be an impact player. And it was great. Like it was again the stars aligned. I came up for Stampede that year, had a blast. Came back in September. I tried out. I found an apartment. I found a job. All within a week, I flew back home. I got my dog. I drove out here. Got a visa at the border. Like things just lined up. I don't even know. Like I ended up, (laughs) my uncle has a friend whose daughter moved out here and her husband helped me find a job. Like things that just don't make sense just worked out for me. And I was really fortunate. And then my first year was so much fun. I had like Delaney and Espo and uh, re and just all these like classic players that played the last five years with me. And then Burzins and Zuber and Peacock, you know, all these people that just made it a great place to be. And, uh, yeah, Krom and I found this horrible apartment. It was right after the floods. And so there was just no vacancy and I needed a place that was dog friendly. Cause I had my childhood dog with me and I swear the wind would blow and I could feel it through the walls of our apartment. Like that's, that's the kind of quality construction that we had. We were reeling at the time, you know, you know, and I totally get it. And (laughs) I I shouldn't get priority on an apartment since I didn't just lose my home in a flood. I get that. But I also didn't know that context when I moved up here. So it's just like, this is all we can afford really. Um, But yeah, I mean, it wasn't that scary for me to move. I was glad to be out here. And the change to the new team was pretty seamless for you it was smooth like a week or two of nervousness of meeting new people that always comes with any move like that and then so what was the difference between entering into your first year at brown versus entering into your first year with the inferno that's a good question i think i didn't know what to expect with the inferno versus kind of everyone goes off and goes to well everyone from where i grew up kind of leaves for school it was kind of something I'd been expecting and had kind of heard what it would be like from other people, you know, don't eat at the cafeteria too much. You'll gain 20 pounds freshman year, you know, <laughs> you know, the stupid like cliche stuff, but you have some expectation uh, of what dorm life will be like or first job, 
first adult team. <laughs> I don't know. It was a lot of unexpected uh, and like kind of forging my own expectations as things came at me. So that was the big, big difference for me. Right. Because you also had huge expectations for the Brown hockey program because it was such a heralded program, so much history. And that was your dream school. Mm-hmm. I think also, so I came in, there was a draft. It was very air quote draft back then. And I couldn't even find coverage of when I was drafted. I kept like refreshing. I don't remember where I was trying to follow it, maybe on Twitter. I'm like, when is my name going to come up? Like it was, it took like a lot, like I was like one of the bottom rounds. And so my expectation coming in was like, maybe I'm not the level that I think I'm going to be, but no one that's gotten picked before me went to some incredible program or was at some level before me. So I knew I had to prove myself when I got here on the ice. And I really looked forward to that challenge. Something wrong with me. I kind of thrive on being told I can't do stuff. Yeah. And I mean, it's been a build too. I think Oh, we had Purcell and Urban at that time, too. Those were good friends of mine. Now they're in Markham winning championships. Jerks. <laughs> um, it was interesting for me. You come into a college program and there is an element of like you get a full set of free gear. You get hockey sticks kind of whenever you need them, whenever they break. You have ice whenever you want it. You can go in the middle of the day. You have ice. Uh, and then I got to the Inferno and this was pretty early days in the CETA was five seasons ago. It's the first year they're being branded as the Inferno going from Team Alberta. We don't have much of a staff. We have a lot of volunteers that the team doesn't really know. And I don't know, I just started doing my thing. I started getting involved in the fundraising that Purcell was organizing, the loser pool, and trying to use whatever other skills that I have with, uh, you know, I like to be a magician on Excel sometimes. So I made the loser pool kind of automated. And then, you know, we didn't have any schedules to hand out and no one in Calgary had heard of us. And I'm, so I, I went and I made and I printed schedules and we started handing them out so the girls could put them somewhere. And, you know, these little like just pick yourself up, up by the bootstrap kind of things to make it more legitimate. And, you know, we've come so far. It's so cool to see how far we like great volunteers, great staff, like professional photographers now. I mean, it's just like light years. Well, on year one, it sounded like you were defenseman, marketing, accounting, yeah. all the above, spreadsheet. Yeah, it was IT. like whatever, wherever I saw a gap, I was on it. Or I tried to be, and I wasn't always perfect, and I definitely didn't catch everything. And I'm sure I stepped on toes along the way, but, you know, I just tried to, whatever we need, whatever we need, we'll figure it out. We got we to gotta make it better. What motivated you to do that, though? Because you could really just sit back and, I don't know, you know just who I am. <laughs> it's just it's like uh yeah i don't know let's just fast forward to the clarkson cup run uh 2016 i believe yeah my third my third season with the inferno and at that point i assume you've already figured out how to play with the no body checking rule i think i play. adjusted and you found a medium i, I mean believe. i still had that nickname the pierre box that was from the inferno time so maybe i never really figured it out but i think last season i was really good <laughs> for not being getting penalties but tell me a little bit about that whole season uh in terms of team chemistry and um maybe some of the goals that you guys had set early on you know obviously Clarkson Cup is the ultimate goal but what were the conversations like in terms of what it would take to get there yeah I think it was a really neat year and what I think of the most actually looking back was uh Jenner's leadership that year um, I know it's kind of a weird thing to point out. Uh, I think my first year was an Olympic year. So all the Olympic girls were off, you know, winning gold medals. 
And uh, my second year, we had all of the Olympians come back and then a lot of uh, development players who were trying to make the cut. We kind of had this division on our team socially between uh, girls in the Team Canada program and girls who were working full time. And it was it was never malice or intention. It was just a matter of all those girls were training together and uh, had you know the different impositions of being part of the national team program placed on them and the pressures. And we just ended up with kind of an incohesive unit. And then Jenner came in and she really took ownership of the Inferno being her club. And she vocalized, I think, a priority on the Inferno that I don't think that we had had from some of, you know, and this is not a knock on anyone, any of the Olympians prior. Um, I think Jenner is just a special leader, actually. And I think she just brought the groups together. And I think we brought in some new talent. And that final game was the best game of hockey. I mean, like... Blaro, how many goals can you score in one game? Like she was on fire and like everything was just working. I'm sure everyone has experienced those games when things are just clicking and like the passes are working and everyone's moving together and And all the bounces are going your way. Yeah. Um what a cool experience. I mean, we're in Canadian Tire Center playing on NHL ice. We've got the Jumbotron going, we're seeing replays. I mean, it was amazing. Well, and it must have blown your expectations out of the water because rewinding back to when we were talking about your decision to come out here. You were thinking, oh man, rec league team, honey badgers, whatever. And then now all of a sudden you're playing in an NHL rink. Yeah, it was very different. And I can actually say, um, I remember my first practice that Irv and Johnny were at, were there when they came back. And Mick is a defenseman, so I wasn't like going up against her. But I remember just being like pumped to play, like a little kid, like one-on-one battle drill. Oh, I shut down an Olympian or, oh, I'm going to get her next time. Or it just like really ramped up the intensity for me and it's childish for sure. I'm, most of the other girls have been have been playing with and against those girls in the Canadian national program. I, I haven't had that experience since high school. So I remember just being really psyched about that and it became normal in an awesome way. Like it became, that's the intensity that I, that we got to bring every day. And that wasn't always easy. You know, you work full time. It's really hard to have energy at the end of the day for practice. Mentally and physically. Yeah. What would you say was more straining? It's hard because I think the two play into each other. I think it's always mental. I think you can always push through physical. Well, we talked about it earlier in the show. It's all sports is all about mental. Yeah. So, you know, if I haven't slept well for two nights, I can still show up and try my hardest. It's just mental. And I didn't, I didn't do that every day. I tried to do that every day, but personal drive, personal limits. And, you know, when you're working eight to five, not eating dinner, going straight to the rink, trying to fit in a lift, uh, and then you're traveling, getting up at 5 a.m., flying somewhere for two games, flying back, getting in at 2 in the morning, going back to work at 7 the next day. It was just, I mean, it's hard to its hard to get through that. I don't know many people who can push through that much better than what we were able to do. But but you finished up five seasons with the Inferno. Um, oh, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It no, was just ab- hard. Absolutely. Um, but do you feel like you figured that out? Like, does that, does that ever go away? Do you ever figure it out or do you just get better at managing it? I think it was always a survival. It was never ideal, you know? Um, even in year five, even in year five, um, you know, not eating dinner is not ideal for performance and it's what you got to do sometimes. And you get home from practice and you're amped up and you can't sleep. I don't know how you manage that better. I'm not going to start taking sleeping pills. It's not for me. I'm to each their own. But there's only so much you can adjust. There's only so many hours in the day. Uh, and there's only so much you can do. <laughs> I don't know. That uh, that Clarkson Cup win was an interesting year too because we had um, 
I contributed a lot in the first half of the season. And then we had two Olympic defensemen, Mick and Bridge, come back. And my ice time, my role changed a lot. And that was mentally tough, but it was still incredible to win. And you forget all of that once you win. And to be a 4-5 instead of a 3-4, how much the mental part of the game changes and how much more frustrating every mistake you make can be because you know that there's someone clawing for your spot right behind you. It's just part of the part of the game, I guess. So for someone who's maybe in that position now, what would you say to that person maybe who's got their ice time cut? How do you best serve the team? Well, I would say definitely don't let other people's expectations of you dictate how you play. I think I play my best when I think I'm the best one on the ice and I have no illusions that I'm ever the best one on the ice, but I play my best when I convince myself that I am and I play better. And so it's really easy when you're on the chopping block to take every comment from your coach and every comment from your teammate to heart. And I'm definitely guilty of it, but I would say for advice, believe in yourself. I know it's really cliche, but like, you know, find the place that you really just their expectations don't matter. It's just your expectations. Patch had a good way of saying that this year. Um, He talked a lot about never being the victim, never allowing yourself to be the victim. And uh, he talked about it in some really interesting context. He uh, had us read a book by Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor. And he kind of outlines how he survived being in the, in in the concentration camps during world war two. And uh, it's completely in your own head. It's completely in your own head. Everything about the way you react to a situation, even the most horrific situations that are nowhere near comparison to anything that you would ever feel on the ice. But if someone can do it in a life or death situation, you surely can do it with the way you're playing day in, day out. And that takes practice. That doesn't happen overnight. That's not just like a decision that you make, but to never allow yourself to be the victim. We talked about it at a team concept too this year. You know, we lost a lot of players. Uh, between my fourth season and my last season. That's right. We lost, uh, I want to say, 11 that actively went to the Olympics and three more that left the team for other pursuits. So we lost three quarters of our team. And we made a decision as a unit earlier in the year that that was not going to be our identity. We're not going to be, oh, poor Inferno that lost all these players. Like We just weren't going to let the expectations that we were going to suck define us. And we proved that that wasn't, the case. Well, and you've said it before that year five was probably your favorite year. Maybe not your best, like it was your favorite year to play. Um, what was so special about that group? I can't say enough about the girls on the team last year. And it's not a knock on the girls on the teams before. It just, we really had a unified goal and everyone was putting in the time and everyone was wanting to lift each other up in a way that I haven't been a part of ever, actually. Just uh, full faith in their teammates that they could be better and that they when they made their mistakes, that wasn't who they were. They were someone better than that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, like I've been on a ton of teams where people, you know, with uh, small body language, when you make a bad pass, they look at you like, Ugh, again, person A, what are you doing? You don't belong on this ice. Who do you think you are for being here? You know, you can't even make a simple pass. And this year it was like, no, man, I know, I know you can, I know you can make that pass with your eyes closed. So whatever it is today, you're going to snap out of it. And here's a tap on the shins and we'll figure it out. And that just translated to off ice chemistry too. Like we just loved hanging out with each other this year. It was a very cool experience. What was your favorite off ice team bonding moment? Uh, we, we had a day in China that 
was amazing. Um, we all like crammed into someone's hotel room. And honestly, we didn't need to be in China. We could have been in, we could have been in a hotel anywhere in the Downtown world. Downtown Calgary. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how, but we just started going around the horn with stories of growing up. And it was just a really, really, like my abs hurt from laughing so much. Everyone just came out of their shell. Every single person spoke up, said something embarrassing that happened to them. Like it was, it was so much fun. Well, and that was probably the reason why you picked up the most points out of any North American team on the China trip that year. Yeah, we had a good run in China. That was a a couple of fun games, actually. That was fun. Let's talk about the day trip to Hong Kong. And I know we split off there. And the the place we split off at was this like really grimy (laughs) dim sum place. Okay, this was my fault. Okay, so (laughs) um, when we went to Japan, we had like split into maybe three groups. So we had like seven girls with us. It was like Doss and Krom and Jenner and Cuddy and Goose. And I can't remember who else, but we just like ran off and tackled all of Tokyo in one day. And we were just hyper efficient and just like got all these sight- all the sightseeing in. So I thought Hong Kong would be the same. And our group was huge. <laughs> I don't, we had like 15 people with us and we were like counting, du- you know, counting little ducklings. We were like, stop to get tickets and then we'd wait for everyone to catch up and then we'd make sure everyone was together and then we'd go to the next thing and so i don't know uh meg's mom when we were in hong kong was like i want to go to dim sum dim sum and i was like okay and i looked up in my little travel app okay where's the you know recommended place and we went into this place and it's uh it's family style chaos like i can't even explain we walk in and we're 15 people and then we do a lap of this place and everyone's just staring at us. Like who are these white people? Basically. I know not everyone on our team is white, but it was basically like crew of people who are outsiders. I think I was the only one who fit in. It was clearly like, yeah, but you didn't even belong either because you had your backpack on and you look like you were a foreign tourist. tourist. (laughs) We were all just like wandering around looking for a place to sit. And we're this huge group. And the way that this place works is that you just sit when there's an open chair, you sit with strangers and then it's chaotic. They just bring food and you you check it off this list. And I'm still not even sure how that happened, like how you're supposed to do that. And I'm vegetarian. So I was like, just I out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. I just completely out of luck. The, the menu. Yeah. And uh, we sit down at this table. You had split off from us at this point, I think. That's why I need to have you tell the story. <laughs> yeah. So we sit down at this table and... There are two seats for five of us and we just make, we just like squeeze in. We're just like, we're doing this. And then one person like went off to go track down someone to like take food off the carts. They had like dumplings and like all these different dishes on carts. And uh, the guy is sitting across the table. He must have been like, I don't know, dad age sitting at the table and he looks at us like we're a bunch of idiots and he's trying to explain to us how we how we're supposed to do everything in broken English and then he just like he gives up and he just like takes us under his wing and he starts sharing all of his food with us and he's like okay so this is the tea that you need to drink and here try this and he like found me something to eat that was vegetarian it had a little bit of seafood that I just like picked around but it was the closest I got to a real meal all that day and uh, he finally hands over these chicken legs. And it's not like you think yes. of like a, a Flintstone, like drum of meat. It was literally like the foot and it still had its claws. And there's just like a little bit of meat and you can see the end of the bone of the ankle sticking out. And it looks disgusting. 
But this guy has been so nice to us that we feel obligated to try. And so Krom like mans up. She like takes a big, big deep breath and she <laughs> bites into it. And it's all these little bones. Like she didn't realize that it wasn't one bone. And she, <laughs> she's trying with chopsticks. She makes this face. She gags. It was, oh my God. It was amazing. And Gams caught it on film, which is perfect. Just Krom freaking out over this bone. She doesn't know how she's like spitting it in her hand, like trying to, for the guy to not see it. <laughs> Final question about the trip to China. Did you ever think that hockey would ever take you to China? No, and it's so cool. We had a lot of fans at those games. I was so blown away by the opportunity to expose little girls to the sport. I mean, hockey has taken me a lot of places in my life, but mostly hockey places. And to to bring it somewhere where they don't even have men's hockey, really, it's just very cool. So you finish up year five with the inferno when did you first start thinking about life after hockey um, when you would maybe hang up the skates so i actually thought my fourth year was going to be my last year i applied to schools um one school didn't get in um but then i knew around like christmas time ish maybe a little before then that school or not it was probably time and i just tried to make the most of it tried to have, go out on a good year. I set some goals for myself in terms of points and plus minus, and I met my goals, which was very cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll ever, like I said earlier, hit a point where I'm like, yep, time to hang up the skates. Like, I'm going to play beer league till I can't walk for sure. I just love it too much. Well, so there was a point in uh, that time frame where it was a possibility for you to go actually work up at Edmonton, wasn't it? Yeah, I actually kind of forgot about that. <laughs> um, so... I applied for school in September, and then in November, December, I got my dream job in at ATCO on what's called the Research and Innovation Team, and we're doing renewable energy, which is exactly what I want to do, and that job posting was in Edmonton, and so I didn't think I was going to get the job because it was I was underqualified for sure, and again, I got very lucky, I guess, or they saw something in me, and so I talked my boss into letting me wait to move to Edmonton until after hockey season. So, yeah, I knew I was going to have to move this summer uh, regardless. And then um, I also got into school about two months later, and that was definitive, uh, definitely my last season. And then you announced your retirement on Twitter. Uh, So that actual decision was probably pretty easy for you then, wasn't it? I mean, this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, this, This school that I've gotten into, I'm excited about every single class that I have to take. And I get to go to Spain and the program takes me traveling all over the place because we go do projects in random countries. And don't get me wrong, it couldn't be a more perfect opportunity, but it's, I don't think there's any opportunity that would be like, yeah, leave hockey. It's great. Mm-hmm. And that's really been your whole life up until this point, hey? Yeah. And this is my first time moving somewhere without a team. It's a little scary. You get an automatic family when you move somewhere and you have a hockey team. And finally, what does it look like for you to continue maybe being an ambassador for the game or trying to promote the game, grow the game, uh, especially for women's hockey uh, here in North America? I guess I'm going to play it by ear. I don't know how realistic it's going to be for me to follow when I'm 10 hours ahead or whatever it is, uh, eight hours, I think. I've coached most springs that I've been here. I love working with... uh, the younger players, I think it's so much fun to see that excitement for the sport at that age. Um, I see myself coaching at some point, but probably not competitively. I see myself getting involved 
and the management side and maybe helping hag out, but not giving up my career. I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll see where I'm needed. Sorry. I actually do have one more question. Okay. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you this question because this article came out that you, Deb and Espo had all retired pretty much around the same time or are pursuing other uh, ventures. But did you guys ever talk about the, the three of you guys? Uh, was there like a, you know, did you guys book out a conference room and was like, okay, let's just map this out here. What's our timeline? No, not at all. I think that all three of us knew early on in this season that it was our last year. And I think there was an element of playing for one another, the same way that you play for your seniors in high, in college, but it just felt more, it felt different because I mean, Espo and Delaney have done so much to build this program up. Uh, you know, they've done so much with Start the Spark and helping out the youth teams. And I mean, Delaney, like so many people look up to Delaney and Espo. They're such good hockey players. It's just, it's like the end of an era. <laughs> and I'm just riding the wave. <laughs> well, perfect. Thank you so much for joining me on Story Island. I just loved hearing your story there. So really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading the Play. For more content, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and you can also download other episodes at sportcalgary.ca. Check out the Facebook page, Reading the Play, and to stay up to date on the latest RTP news, including new episodes, make sure to follow on Instagram at Reading the Play and myself, Jeremy Lee, at Legacy. I really hope there is a piece of Jackie's story that impacts, inspires, and ignites you to help you win your day. And as always, I'll catch you in the next episode.